This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the focus of this morning's sermon, verses 12 and following. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, This morning's sermon is part two of our final uh, sermon in our series through the book of Philippians. If you were here last week, you know that I presented a three-point outline, but then intentionally uh, only preached two of those points and kind of saved this last point uh, for this morning. We established a mental picture uh, last week for this two-part sermon. I, I wanted you to get in your mind, and I again today want you to get into your mind the best and most genuine and most authentic and most honest and most caring and most loving door-to-door salesman ever. I said last week that I think the best door-to-door salesman should have three goals. Okay, First, they should be able to clearly share with you all the benefits offered in their quote-unquote product. Okay, Second, they should be able to clearly tell you with no surprises what the cost is to you what the expense is to you, what you have to bring to the table uh, to make the transaction happen. And finally, and this is the focus of today after a little bit of review, I think a great salesman uh, will make sure that you know how to use all that you have. They, They will make it their goal to make sure that you're implementing and truly benefiting from what you gained in the relationship with them. So again, our outline Uh, over the last two weeks has been this. First, what does Christianity offer? Uh, Second, how do we get what's offered? Uh, You know, what do you bring to the table, so to speak? And then finally, uh, what do we do with what we get? So quick review in case you weren't here last week. What does Christianity offer? If you want to, you can look. Uh, Verses 9 through 11, uh, we we pointed out four benefits or four realities that, that Christianity brings to the table, so to speak. Righteousness, relationship, renewal, and resurrection. Okay, righteousness brings relationship. Uh, righteousness is this idea of having a life resume, a record. It's this idea of in God's eyes, uh, he's satisfied with how you've lived. He, he's satisfied uh, with what you have done. He, he approves of, of, of how you've behaved and how you've loved and, and how you've lived. And so we said that righteousness is a resume or a record, and we said in Christianity, God gives a righteousness. It says in verse 9 that that we have to turn our backs on any righteousness that we could produce on our own and receive the righteousness that comes as a gift from God. And because we're righteous, we can have relationship with God, intimate, personal relationship 
with God. God relates to us in incredibly intimate ways, and the pictures that the scriptures give us for how he relates to us vary from father to friend to brother to counselor to comforter to guide. So relationship flows from righteousness because you can get in his presence because you have a good record. But then once you're in relationship, relationship brings renewal. Paul says in verse 10 that the power God exerted in raising Jesus from the dead is the same power God uses in your life and my life to make us more beautiful, to make us more moral, to make us more loving over time. The gospel is this, God uh, loves us right where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us where we are. God loves us unconditionally, but he loves us too much to leave us in our current condition. And then lastly, on the benefits, again, this was probably 10 or 15 minutes of last week's sermon. If you want, you want to go back and listen to that, you can. I, I can't go over it all again today. But, but renewal kind of leads to and is the path towards a resurrection from the dead. I heard from a lot of you last week, obviously being Easter Sunday, but a lot of us were really encouraged by thinking about the new heaven and the new earth, that God is going to usher in this eternal existence where we will live in perfect peace with him. We will have perfect internal peace uh, with ourselves. We will relate to one another perfectly, uh, not able to sin against each other, not able to hurt each other, not able to, to judge each other, not able to, uh, to, to be greedy and to be jealous and, and to have all that conflict that, that is in our relationships now and, and forever. Jesus will usher in this, this beautiful, perfect existence where there, there's this physical peace uh, with nature. No, no tooth and no claw. So we've been saying all along through our study in Philippians, okay, that, that we gain everything worth having in this life and the next. We gain everything worth having in this life and the next. And again, you can summarize it. Righteousness, relationship, renewal, and resurrection. All right, second short point of review. If that's the benefit of Christianity, what, what do we, how do we get what's offered? What do we have to bring to the table? How do we seal the deal? How does it become ours? And we said last week, this is contrary to our instinct. This is contrary to our natural tendency. But Paul clearly teaches in, in verses 7 and 8 that this is what we bring to the table. A doing of nothing. An intentional doing of of nothing. It is not that everyone gains the benefits of Christianity because you don't have to do anything. Those who gain the benefits of Christianity are those who proactively do nothing to gain everything. God is a God of grace. He saves by grace alone. Grace is unmerited favor. You have a love that you cannot earn in any way. Grace is being blessed and treated as if you did everything right, even when you have done everything wrong, because Jesus on the cross was treated as if he did everything wrong, when in fact he did everything right. To do nothing is to come to God and say, there's nothing about what I've been or about what I've done that I could bring to you to to earn from you any uh, part of these benefits or all of these benefits. Grace means this, if keeping these benefits is up to me, who I am now and what I will do today, I can't do it. Doing nothing is even more than that. Doing nothing to to gain everything means this, there's nothing I can do in the future to earn more love from God. There's nothing I can do in the future uh, to be more accepted by God. 
There's nothing I can do in the future to be more delighted in by God. That's what we mean by doing nothing. The foundational and the ongoing posture of the Christian is this. I did nothing, I do nothing, and nothing I do in the future will be the grounds for gaining God's love. Will be the grounds for gaining everything. Okay, so this morning, with all of that said, we're ready to answer our fourth question. What do we do with what we get? What do we do with what we get? And so as I said last week, I switched uh, cable providers recently. And the salesman, I think, um, uh, I don't think he was particularly honest about what I'd have to bring to the table over time to have his product. Um, with that being said, he did a fantastic job of helping me understand the benefits of his product compared to the product uh, that I had. The one I have now far, uh, is far superior uh, to the previous previous product. It's truly amazing. There, there's a, the remote control is just stunning. All the potential in that remote control is fantastic. My kids have tapped into it. Uh, I cannot seem to figure it out. What, what frustrates me the most about the interaction I have with that salesman, I mentioned this last week, is that he promised to come back. He promised. I, 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 I clearly said, I'm not technologically savvy. I don't understand these things. You are rattling off some amazing benefits. Will you come back after the install date, and would you just take half an hour to show me how to use all of these benefits you just delineated? Literally, we shook hands on it, promised to come back. As my grandmother would say, we have seen neither hide nor hair of him uh, since. Here's my premise for this morning. We have gained so much in the gospel. The benefits of Christianity are so immense and so amazing, but we have no idea what to do with what we've got. We're barely stepping into what we already have. We are underutilizing what we own. Okay, Lynn Sanity. Jeremy Lynn, New York Knicks NBA superstar. Okay, really strong high school basketball career. 32 and 1 led a state championship team. Not one college offered Lynn an athletic scholarship. So he goes to Harvard on an academic scholarship. After a really strong collegiate basketball career, albeit at Harvard, um, not one NBA team drafted Lynn. Finally, due to his perseverance, the Golden State Warriors, they sign uh, Jeremy Lynn to the minimum contract, and they send him to the development league three times in his first year. They release him after a year. The New York Knicks uh, picked up Lynn after he was released uh, by the Warriors, and they too put him in the minor leagues uh, of NBA basketball. And then out of nowhere, because of injuries to other players, he gets his opportunity, okay? He gets his chance. He's their only option. He, he has to start. He has to play. He has to carry it the whole game. That's his sweet spot. As you know, he's led the, the Knicks. He led the Knicks um, to, to an impressive Really impressive win streak. He established himself truly as an all-star caliber player. But think about this. Two teams had an all-star player sitting on the bench of their developmental teams. I would call that an underutilized, underappreciated, underimplemented asset. Okay? Uh, William Randolph Hearst. A significant business magnet, uh, a leading newspaper uh, publisher in the early 20th centuries. Um, he he um, really um, brought about the whole industry of, 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 of false journalism, essentially. Um, everything you read now in the supermarket um, that has nothing to do with reality, he actually started that and made a ton uh, off of it. Okay, uh, But he, had a, a, he was a moonlighter. He was a very avid uh, art, art collector. 
And so one morning, uh, Hearst was reading um, about, he he was reading in in, in a journal piece about art. He he was reading about this really rare and presumably lost uh, piece from from an artist that he really cared about. And so he gathered a team, and he gave the team the assignment. It's the early 1900s. He said, I want you to find that piece. He says, traverse the globe. Spare no expense. Do what you have to do in order to find the peace. When you find the peace, spend whatever it takes to buy it from whoever owns it. And so several months go by. His team finally returns home, and the, the meeting is set. They, they walk into Mr. Hurst's office, and the first, ask, uh, first question, did you find the piece of art? Yes, sir, we did. Did you buy it? No, sir, we did not. Furious, tirade, expletives. I told you to spare no expense. I have to have it. His team finally, when he calmed down, said to him, Sir, we didn't buy it because you already own it. Evidently, years before, Hearst procured the painting, put it in storage, forgot all about it. That's an underutilized, underappreciated, underimplemented asset. I think the same can be said of us and what we've gained in Jesus Christ. That's my premise for the morning. Now, I realize that one benefit is resurrection from the dead, okay? I realize that one benefit is renewal, which implies that we've not yet arrived, okay? But I'm still convinced that we're not taking advantage of and we're not living out of and we're not enjoying to the full uh, all that we have in Jesus. So the rest of our time this morning, and remember, these are like three sub-points, not three points, Three subpoints. I, I think there are three principles in verses 12 through 14. Uh, I think as Paul, he talks about doing nothing. He talks about gaining everything. And then he says, because of all of that, uh, this is my take on life. This is how I live life. And these three principles that I want us to look at um, are the following. Paul repeats the reality. He has a focus on the future. And he savors the sequence. I think more intimate relationship with Jesus. I think more intense renewal. I think more internal rest will come to us as we repeat the reality, focus on the future, and savor the sequence. All right? So let's dig in. You're going to need your worship folders, your Bible. Uh, Pick up in verse 12. All right? Verse 12, repeat the reality. Not that I have already obtained this. Okay, so this refers back to the resurrection from the dead as the culmination of everything you get in Jesus, all that you can gain in Christ. Paul Paul says the totality of the benefits are not yet in his possession. Verse 12 goes on. This is the second repetition of reality. Not that I am already perfect. In other words, the renewal process is not yet complete in me. And third, verse 13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Three times in three verses, the first principle for more fully utilizing what you already have, as paradoxical as it sounds, is to repeatedly, daily, and constantly tell yourself that you don't yet have it. To more fully enjoy your relationship with Jesus, you have to own how weak your current relationship with him is. To more fully engage Jesus' renewing power, you have to confess your great need for it. To more fully rest in the righteousness you have in Jesus, you have to make yourself desperate for it. This is the consistent teaching of Scripture. The one who is wise thinks he's a fool. The fool thinks he's wise. 
The one who wants to be a great spouse or a great friend has to become convinced just how horrible of a spouse or a friend they currently are. If you want to keep stepping into what is yours, you have to increasingly remind yourself you have an awful lot to step into. The one who grows in character is the one who increasingly believes that they're the biggest sinner they know. Did you know, did you realize, it's at the end of Paul's life that he calls himself the chief of sinners. At the beginning of Paul's ministry, he writes that he's the least of the apostles. Some time goes on and some ministry goes by and Paul writes in another letter that he's on the lowest man on the totem pole when it comes to believers. So he went to the least of the apostles to the least of believers. At the end of his life, Paul writes, he's the foremost of sinners. He says, I'm the biggest sinner. I don't know about you. I don't know another human being that got closer to perfection in their life than the Apostle Paul. His heart was celebrating all the time the love of God. He, he, he was in step with the Spirit. Whatever that means, he was walking with the Spirit. His mind was popping with truth. The man, he would sing songs and praise God in the middle of being tortured. Uh, the man w- was looking at imminent death. He's looking at uh, an unjust death in the face at the hands of Caesar. And he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He was impressive. He's at the most impressive point in his life when he writes to Timothy, a letter after this letter. And in that letter, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. There's something to that. In order to step into what you already have, paradoxically, you have to keep telling yourself that you don't have it. Even when you surpass those around you in genuine, measurable character and fruit, even when you become mature and people come to you for for insight and wisdom and teaching and direction, you have to continually repeat the reality. I don't have it yet. I haven't obtained it. I don't yet got my hands around it. It's still out in front of me. One, One commentator wrote this, The closer you get to perfection the more clearly you see how far you are from perfect. The closer you get to perfection, the more clearly you see how far you are from perfect. So we step into the benefits that are already ours to the extent that we repeat that reality. But secondly, uh, Paul, as often as he repeated that reality, he, he, he always turned his focus to the future. He'll repeat the reality, but he won't accept it. He'll repeat the the reality, but he wasn't okay with it. Okay, look back at the text. Listen Listen to it again, starting in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on uh, to make it my own. Press on is to chase, is to pursue. In chapter 3, verse 6, Paul used this same exact word to talk about his persecution of the church. To make it my own is to arrest by force. Paul says, I don't have it, 12a, uh, but I pursue it in order to arrest it, 12b. 13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have arrested it, but one thing I do, and by the way, he tells two things, but who's counting besides me? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Most Most popularly, this word was the word used for a runner at the end of a long race sticking out their chest uh, to to strike the tape with their chest. 
and win the race. Paul summarizes things in verse 14. I press on towards, so again, that same word, I chase, I pursue, I persecute. The goal for the prize of the upward call of God. Okay, so he mixes metaphors. The goal is the bullseye. It's a sniper's mark, okay? Uh, it's literally the word from which we get scope, like rifle scope. He's like, he's like I am pursuing very pointedly that mark, that bullseye. And then he says, I'm pursuing it for the prize, which is the word for the wreath or the medal that a gladiator would win for staying alive. Paul, Paul is saying the more intimate relationship with Jesus comes to the one who pursues it in the way Paul doggedly pursued Christians before he was saved. Paul is saying the more powerful renewal comes to the one who races to win or fights to stay alive. Paul repeats the reality, but his focus is always on the future. His life is strenuously lived in the direction of that future. He'll repeat the reality, but he will not accept it as his future. Every time Paul repeated the reality, that he didn't yet have it. He would turn to this laser-like focus on having it as soon as possible. I think we're content with just not having it. In an old, old sermon on this text, Tim Keller illustrates his focus. He he talks about the difference between a normal light and a laser light. I was about to just give you the illustration. I was like, they're going to know I I know nothing about laser light. So I'll just go ahead and admit that I didn't come up with this. Somebody else came up with it. I did come up with one. I'll share with you in a minute. Um, and, and it's so old that Keller talks about reading it in his encyclopedia, which means the Wikipedia is not around. It means the Internet's not around. That's how old this illustration is, okay? Which is why, if it's wrong, that's why. All right? Laser light differs from regular light in two ways. First of all, regular light goes in every direction at once. Turn on a light bulb, and it goes all over the place. Laser light is, in a sense, gathered up, and put out in one direction. Secondly, regular light operates on a number of frequencies, but laser light is pushed and pressed forcefully to operate on one or practically one frequency. The power of intense focus is when the broad spectrum of something is gathered up, focused on one target, and forcefully pushed on the trajectory of that target. Think about your relationship with Jesus, knowing Jesus. Light switch, turned on every now and then, going in a lot of different directions, or laser beam, gathered up and pushed in one direction. A laser cannot go backwards. A laser cannot go side to side. It forgets what lies behind and also implied in straining forward. A laser refuses to get caught up with the trivial realities that surround it in the here and now. As you think about your character, as I think about my character, my need for growth is our pursuit of holiness and perfection. Is it an ordinary light or is it a laser? Paul's just talking about something that we already know, that there's a power and intense focus that can make a significant impact in our lives. So so here's my illustration of intense focus. Tim has lasers. I have high heel shoes. High heel shoes, okay? 
300-pound men can run on and jump on and fall on and wrestle on a hardwood floor and not make a lasting impact at all. A 100-pound woman can simply walk on a basketball floor wearing a stiletto heel and make a permanent dent in the floor. A basketball player's weight is dispersed over a size 18 shoe. But with a high heel shoe, all the weight is focused on one spot, resulting in a lasting impact. So if you go back to my cable provider, imagine that he did come back to my house. Imagine that he did show me how to increasingly enjoy all that I have. I'm trying to help us understand that when Paul says, you have all of this, you do nothing to get all of this, he he then turns and says, but listen, this is how you utilize it. This is how you enjoy it. This is how you grasp it. Principle one, this is going to be a paradox. Repeat the reality that you don't have it. Principle two, gather up your life. Set it on a target. Set it on the target of having it. And push all of your existence onto that trajectory and into that frequency. Now, in our minds... We might be experiencing just a little bit or even a lot of tension, okay? The same Paul in verses 7 through 9, uh, the one that says you can do nothing uh, to gain everything. You have to do nothing to gain everything is the same Paul that's now describing his life in rigorous and strenuous uh, terms of doing. Think about how Paul describes himself, the metaphors and the illustrations that he uses. Every one of them is an intense occupation and not a frolicking hobby. A persecutor. One who chases down perceived criminals in order to arrest them. An Olympian. One who trains full-time to run the race. A gladiator. One who fights to the death. When Paul says... Think about your pursuit of Jesus as an athlete. He's not saying, think about a NASCAR driver. He's like, think of a hockey player. That kind of athlete. When he says, think of your pursuits of holiness like a fighter. He's like old school UFC. He's not like, you know, boxing in the Olympics where you have headgear and gloves and such. He's talking strenuous, vigorous, radical. When we are tempted to say, let go and let God, we haven't read Paul. Paul says he's trying to chase perfection down and arrest it. That's a little bit different from let go and let God. If you have that bumper sticker, I have a great Four Rivers bumper sticker I can give you to put over it. Don't be alarmed. If you feel the tension... I can't earn my righteousness, but I'm giving my life to being righteous. I can't earn my relationship with Jesus, but I'm giving my life to having relationship with Jesus. The tension is in the tagline and the framework and the slogan we've been using for this whole series. In the six words is included, do nothing and give anything. Do nothing and give anything. All right, one more principle. Look back. Uh, to verses 12 to 14. I hope this sort of alleviates some of the tension, but I also uh, hope this is a powerful tool in in helping us uh, know what to do with what we get in the gospel. Okay, so what we've said is as often as Paul repeats the reality, uh, he also, with that much frequency, he, he focuses on the future. But as often as Paul focuses on the future, he savors the sequence. He savors the sequence, okay? Uh, look in verse 
12. Let me show you what I mean by savoring the sequence. It's not in my possession, nor am I already perfect, but I press on to make it perfection my own. Okay, so the phrase, nor am I already perfect, is a passive verb in the Greek language. Okay, uh, it, it, it could be rendered, it should be rendered uh, this way. Not that I have already been made perfect. Verse 12 literally reads, I have not received this, nor have I been perfected. Some of us jump on that side of the verse and we say, look, God isn't done with me. God's going to perfect me. He's going to give this to me. But look at what Paul does with that truth. He doesn't frolic around in it. He doesn't say, I'm going to spend the rest of my life avoiding big sins and trying to get some worldly success. What is he doing with the fact that God's the one who will perfect him? But I press on. I pursue perfection to apprehend it, to arrest it, to make it my own. And then in case you miss the sequence, he goes back in verse 12. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He has arrested me. He has apprehended me. Therefore, I will chase after him. Not if I grab Christ, he will grab me. But because Christ has grabbed all of me, I will chase after him and try and grab all of him. He is savoring the sequence. It is do nothing in order to gain everything and then give anything to the one who gave you everything when you did nothing. At the end of verse 14, Paul references the upward call. It's a phrase that his audience would have been very familiar with. He's painting this picture of, of an emperor calling the victorious gladiator to his seat, to his skybox, if you will. And, and he's going to award the gladiator the prize, which is a wreath or a crown or maybe a medal for his, for his victory. And Paul is saying that he thinks of his life, his Christianity, his pursuit of Jesus, as if he's a gladiator. He fights and he wrestles and he lives in a way to be the only one who makes it to the end. But look at what he says. Go back to your text at the end of the verse. He said, when God calls him with the upward call as the victor, he doesn't say that he wins because of what he did or how he performed or how well he pursued. He says he wins because he's already in Christ Jesus. He doesn't receive the upward call in and of himself He already has the upward call in Jesus. I wish... Jesus is the one who made it through. He's the victor. He deserves the prize, okay? What does he do? He gives up the victory and he takes our loss and our death on the cross. And God is going to call Paul into his presence, not because Paul won, but because he cast Jesus away from his presence. Paul does not fight the fight in order to stay alive. He fights the fight because he's been made alive. We don't run the race in order to become victors. We run the race as victors. But if we don't run the race, we've missed the whole boat. You have to savor the sequence. I know it's really hard to get our minds around this, but Paul has already taught us this in Philippians. He said, He who began a good work in you will bring that work to completion. He'll perfect you. Chapter 1, verse 6. And he who works in you, the one who is going to bring you to perfection, will work in you. And the work he does in you is he will make you want what he wants, and he will make you do what he wants. Chapter 2, verse 13. 
And then Paul says, as he works in you, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Almighty God is at work inside of us. If we're not working it out, he's not in. You can't take any of the three out of the equation. We run as one who has already won. We run as one who has already won. I fight to the death because in the death of Jesus, I've been given eternal life I cannot lose. If you've been going to church for a long, a long time, I want you to hear this. Last time, series is over. Do nothing, gain everything, give anything. If we do anything to gain everything, we get nothing. If we give anything to gain everything, we get nothing. But if we're giving nothing, we haven't gained everything by doing nothing. But if you truly do nothing to gain everything, you will increasingly give anything to the one who gave you everything when you did nothing. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your grace and your kindness. I think about my lackadaisical life. I think about my laziness. I think about my love of comfort, my love of pleasure. I think about how I don't like to hurt. I think about how I would never even think about playing hockey, let alone being a gladiator. I think about how weak and frail and wimpy and selfish I am. And I thank you. I thank you that you lived in my place. I thank you that you died in my place. I thank you that your righteousness is mine. I thank you that your record is mine. I thank you that the delight of the Father is mine. I thank you that forgiveness is mine. I thank you that you live inside and you will not leave me in this horrible condition in which I sit now. Thank you for your unconditional love. Do not let us stay in this condition. I pray at the end of this series for uh, this group of men and women that you would teach us um, a, a full And um, although imperfect, uh, a complete picture of your gospel. Would you let us uh, see that we can do nothing to gain your love, that we have all of it, but would you let us see that because of your love, uh, anything we give is getting more of you. Would we come to understand that as we give things away, we gain everything? Would you teach us this paradox? Would you give us sight of Jesus? Would you give us the faith to step in this direction? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.